Well, thank you very much, David, for the introduction, uh, but not for betraying my confidence about my footballing preferences. Uh, thanks very much for coming tonight. Um, I normally tend to kind of try and walk around a bit to um, keep the circulation going and to keep you interested. Um, I can't do that tonight, I'm told, because I need to stick reasonably closely to this microphone. Um, but nonetheless, I hope um, it's going to be a interesting uh, hour and a bit. I'm very happy to take some questions afterwards. On the 29th of April 1945, US troops, which were part of an Allied force sweeping across Germany to crush what was left of the Third Reich, entered the grounds of a sprawling SS complex in Dachau, near Munich. More than 12 years earlier, the SS had set up its first concentration camp here during the early, during the first months of Hitler's rule. Many more camps followed over the following years, initially inside Germany and then across much of Europe, from the Baltic states all the way to the small British Channel Island of Alderney. Um, this is as good a map as I could find for you. Kind of the idea here is not so much to show you the detail uh, as to give you at least some sense of the spread of this camp system and subcamp system, especially in the last two and three years of the Second World War. In all, the SS set up 27 main camps and more than 1,100 attached satellite camps over the course of the Third Reich. Together, these camps formed a special system of lawless terror, different from other sites of forced labor and extermination, such as prisons or ghettos or um, specific um, distinct death camps like Treblinka. We can estimate that overall, 2.3 million men, women, and children were dragged to these SS concentration camps between 1933 and 1945. Most of them, over 1.7 million, lost their lives. Almost one million of the dead were Jews murdered in Auschwitz, the only concentration camp which gained a central role in the Holocaust, operating from 1942 onwards until 1944 as a hybrid slave labor and death camp. Despite its uniquely destructive role, though, Auschwitz remained a firm part of the wider, larger concentration camp universe you see here. These sites embodied all of the destructive dreams of the Nazi leadership, from the creation of a uniform national community through the removal of or extermination of anyone considered a political, social, and racial outsider, all the way to the mastery over Europe, enslaving foreign nations, and colonizing living space. By the spring of 1945, however, these dreams were over. The Third Reich was on its knees, and so was its camp system. In early April, more than two months after Soviet troops reached Auschwitz, the SS still operated 10 main concentration camps and almost 400 satellite camps. Together, these camps held an estimated 550,000 prisoners. 
Just five weeks later, all of these camps were gone. Most of them stood empty when Allied troops arrived. After the SS had forced prisoners on last-minute death marches and transports, which zigzag and crisscross what is left of the Third Reich. In well over 100 camps, though, the Allies found survivors, with numbers ranging from a handful in some of the smallest satellite camps to 55,000 or so in Bergen-Belsen. One of the last main camps to be liberated was Dachau, which held over 30,000 prisoners from many ethnic, religious, and political backgrounds, representing some 30 European nations. The final hours in Dachau had been just as tense as in other camps. By the morning of this 29th of April, 1945, most of the professional SS men had fled, but some guards were still on the watchtowers and they trained their machine guns on the prisoners in the compound below. Detonations could be heard, planes roared across the sky, and the howl of tank engines came and went. And then suddenly a US officer peered into the compound and within minutes Dachau was bursting with jubilant inmates. This is a picture taken from one of the watchtowers um, on the 29th of April 1945. I'm not sure how good the quality is. It has a slight 3D effect from where I'm standing, but I hope you get the gist at least. Even sick prisoners in the Dachau infirmary rejoiced. Among them was a man called Edgar Kupfer, a 39-year-old German political prisoner who'd been detained mostly in Dachau since 1940 for making critical comments about the Nazi regime. He watched from his bed as other ill inmates struggled to their feet, embraced each other, and then stumbled outside. A few hours after this, Kupfer recorded his thoughts, and I quote, I shall celebrate this all my life as a second birthday, as the day when I received the gift of life anew. What I want to do in this lecture this evening is to look at this second life of Edgar Kupfer and of other survivors and of the legacy of the camps more generally. In particular, what I want to explore are the first few months and years after liberation, the memory of the camps in this period, and the punishment of the perpetrators, before I conclude by sketching some lines of the wider development beyond this uh, from the 1950s onwards. So let me start with the first weeks after liberation of the remaining camps. As we saw just now in Dachau, liberation was a cathartic moment for many prisoners. But it was not a simple occasion for celebration. Thousands of inmates were so sick they did not even realize what had happened. As Edgar Kupfer hugged his comrades in the Dachau infirmary, prisoners nearby, perhaps in the bed next to him, were dying, and we know that they stared straight past some of the American soldiers. Others observed the jubilation with incomprehension. One Jewish survivor of Dachau, who'd lost his father only weeks earlier, recalled that he, quote, watched the people sing and dance with joy, and they seemed to me as if they'd lost their minds. 
Among the more ecstatic survivors, meanwhile, the initial excitement also quickly waned. And this was linked to the fact that all of the liberated camps were marked by disease and by death. This is an image of Bergen-Belsen uh, three days after the arrival of the British troops, the main compound in Bergen-Belsen. The conditions the Allies found were largely a product of the last months of Nazi rule. It's important to understand that um, the concentration camps go through a, a, a great number of changes over time. Um, in many ways, the pictures which the Allies take uh, on liberation of the camps have shaped this image of the camp and have been projected backwards. But of course, the camps in 1933 and 39 looked very different to how they look in spring 1945. These conditions, as I say, were the product largely of the last months of the war, when dirt, illness, and disease, and hunger had multiplied due to unprecedented overcrowding and deprivation, while the SS simultaneously engaged in a final round of mass executions in the camps. It's impossible to say how many prisoners perished between January and May 1945, before the Allies arrived. But an estimate of around 300,000 victims is probably not wide off the mark. The prospects of many survivors was bleak too. Emergency relief for what I estimate to be 250,000 inmates liberated inside concentration camps in April and May 45 fell to the individual Allied forces. But these soldiers were poorly prepared for the humanitarian disaster awaiting them. And the situation, especially in the largest camps, remained critical for several weeks. Ten days after liberation, some of the Dachau barracks built for 75 inmates were still packed with up to 600. Some of them sick, some of them dying, some of them dead. As Edgar Kupfer noted at the time, quote, many freed comrades won't experience much of their freedom. During May 1945, in this one month after liberation, over 2,200 Dachau survivors perished, and matters were even worse in Bergen-Belsen. In all, I would estimate that up to 30,000 prisoners who'd been freed in spring 45 perished within weeks, days or weeks of liberation. Mass death was not the only legacy of the Nazi era inside these compounds. During the first days in the liberated camps, the Allies relied heavily on selected inmates building on existing hierarchies and structures which had emerged over the previous months and years. Even terms like block elders, the term used for the prisoner put in charge of specific blocks, remained in use after liberation. These influential inmates, block elders, other so-called carpos I'll come back to later, often led international committees of prisoners, as in Dachau and other camps. And they helped to distribute supplies, enforce discipline, and stop plunder of the SS depots. 
as soon as the SS had departed and the camps were liberated, in a number of camps, storerooms were found full of food and clothing which hadn't been distributed. An appeal of the Dachau Committee of 8th of May 1945 reads, quote, no chaos, no anarchy. That was the motto given out to the survivors. These international committees which sprang up were dominated by former political prisoners who would shape the memory of the camps for years to come. By contrast, social outsiders had no voice at all. And Jewish survivors who made up perhaps 30% of the inmate population in early spring 1945 were marginalized too. Jews in Dachau and elsewhere had to fight for a voice, for representation, for a place on these international committees. There were plenty more conflicts between inmates. Political tensions had poisoned, had poisoned the atmosphere in the liberated camps, just as they had done during the time the Nazis had ruled the camps. There was a lot of conflict within the prisoner community between different political groups. And these tensions also persist into Cold War Europe in the 1950s with entrenched battles between survivor groups over commemoration. Even more pronounced were clashes between national groups, which was another legacy of the wartime camps. Together with gender, nationality was the main structuring principle of the post-war inmate community, with separate barracks by nationality, separate organizations, spokespersons by nationality, and separate newspapers. During the 1st of May celebrations, a big moment for many of the left-wing prisoners surviving in the camps, most of the former prisoners marched under their own country's banner, not under the banner of international solidarity, much to the dismay of less patriotic inmates like Edgar Kupfer. Meanwhile, there are also conflicts between survivors and their liberators, which often stemmed from the discrepancy between the norms of civil society and the norms of the camp, which were deeply ingrained in the survivors. The greatest point of contention was the restriction on inmate movements, as several camps went into temporary lockdown. The military authorities wanted to contain looting and diseases outside the camp. They wanted to keep roads free for demobilization. They wanted to prepare for orderly releases. But for the inmates, this seemed as if they'd been imprisoned one more time. In the end, these tensions eased, and they eased quite quickly, because the camps were cleared by the Allies um, at a pretty fast rate. In Dachau, the final communique of the International Committee appears on the 2nd of June 1945, quote, we depart happy and full of joy from this hell. It is over. And here's an image, if you can make it out without 3D glasses, of the ceremonial burning of the last barrack in Bergen-Belsen on the 21st of May 1945 in the, in the, in the main camp, in Camp 1 in, in, in Bergen-Belsen. As far as I recall, um, they'd also put a picture of Hitler, a post of Hitler, on the wall here before they torched it, just for good measure. 
Once survivors left these compounds, they had to confront the reality of rebuilding their existence. And they did so often from allied field hospitals or assembly centers which were crowded with others who'd been displaced by Nazi terror. And in these centers or hospitals, their paths split. Some went home, some returned after they found that their relatives had perished and their possessions had been lost or taken. Some stayed in permanent DP camps in Germany and some emigrated. Wherever they went, the memory of the camps went with them. And it is that theme, the theme of memory and testimony, to which I want to turn next. The first thing to stress, and I think that's an important point, and perhaps one that's not always taken on board, is that the urge to bear witness to the camps, to testify about the camps, to understand the camps, is not a post-war phenomenon. Prisoners inside the camps from 1933 onwards had always tried to gather information. Primarily, they did this for survival because insights into SS plans and intentions could be life-saving. Some prisoners also stole or transcribed SS documents and wrote secret reports in order to alert the outside world. In Auschwitz, for example, Polish prisoners smuggled maps, documents, statistics to the Polish resistance movement outside, which sometimes succeeded in then transveying these documents to Britain. Um, I've got an image here, which you won't really be able to see very well, I fear. Uh, this is a, an SS list um, in summer, August 1943, of Jewish women who'd been gassed in Birkenau, which was smuggled outside by the resistance movement in Auschwitz in November 1943, with the instructions to try and uh, send this list, this original document, as proof of what was happening in Auschwitz abroad. Many prisoners at the time of the Third Reich also thought about the ways in which the camps might be commemorated in future. In 1944, a small group of Jewish women who'd been deported from Hungary to Auschwitz discussed how they could convey their fate to outsiders should they survive Auschwitz. Maybe they thought through music or maybe through art or maybe through a film about a prisoner's passage to the crematorium with the audience forced to wait outside the cinema without food, without warm clothes, um, just like the prisoners would do in roll call. But in the end, the women decided that even that could not give any real insight into what Auschwitz had really been like. Many other prisoners during the time of the Third Reich grappled with similar questions. Some of them decided to take secret photographs or saved as, as images from destructions. Others, again, kept secret notes. And one of these prisoners was Edgar Kupfer, who we met at the beginning. Taking advantage of his sheltered job as a clerk and of his reputation amongst fellow inmates as a loner, Kupfer wrote, 
more than 1,800 pages secretly in Dachau. Prior to his imprisonment, Kupfer, who uses the pen name, used the pen name Kupfer Korbowitz, if you want to look him up, that's how you would find him. Prior to his imprisonment, Kupfer had worked as a tour guide, mainly in Sardinia, I believe. And he envisaged his book as a kind of grand tour of Dachau. He knew that the SS would murder him if they discovered his secret, but they didn't. And somehow he survived, and so did his notes. Barely recovered from Dachau, he dug up his hidden manuscript on the 5th of May, 1945, together with a US officer, and then typed up his manuscript ready for publication. I've got an image here of Edgar Kupfer taken in early 1946, which is a slightly odd picture, and I, I, I would hazard a guess that it was intended as a kind of publicity photograph for the book he hoped would appear within months. We see him here sitting in his old uh, Dachau prisoner uniform, holding on his lap uh, the reams and reams and reams of pages which he had secretly written and hidden in the camp. After liberation, many thousands of men, women and children were yearning to tell their story. Kupfer was not alone. To be sure, there were also those who wanted to erase the camps from their minds. This impulse was forcefully expressed in May 1945 by Shlomo Dragon, who had belonged to the Auschwitz Sonderkommando. I desperately want to return to normal life, he told Polish investigators, and forget everything I experienced in Auschwitz. Still, survivors were not stunned into collective silence, as has sometimes been said. On the contrary, a loud, a polyphonic chorus rose up immediately after liberation. Within days of the arrival of the Allies or the disappearance of the SS, survivors built memorials, held services, and collaborated on joint reports about the camp. Thousands more accounts followed after they left the camp. And during the first post-war years, a wave of memoirs hit Europe and beyond. Of course, these accounts were not fully representative. I don't believe you will find a book or a memoir by a Jewish prisoner about his time in Mauthausen-Gusen between 1940 and 1943 because no Jewish prisoners survived. They belonged to the mass of the drowned, as Primo Levi called them. Equally, social outsiders, including homosexuals and gypsies, were widely excluded from early commemoration. Even if they had wanted to talk, nobody was prepared to listen. Nonetheless, the early survivor accounts give remarkable insights into the inmate experience as did sociological, historical, and psychological studies written in the first months and years after liberation. These accounts were accompanied by a major Allied media offensive, which began in April 1945. As you will know, the Soviet media had made little of the earlier liberation of Auschwitz in late 
January 1945, which was one reason why Auschwitz initially remained peripheral in the popular discourse. It wasn't until the liberation of Dachau and other sites by the Western Allies that the camps featured on front pages, on radio broadcasts, in newsreels, in magazine spreads, and so on. I've got here the cover page of a photo essay which appeared in the United States in Life magazine, which featured 20 very explicit images of the Nazi concentration camp uh, and that appeared in May 1945. Although these early accounts lacked historical perspective, they did convey a general sense of the scale of the crimes that had taken place in the camps. In a May 1945 survey, ordinary Americans, when asked in a big opinion poll by Gallup, when asked about the concentration camps and their victims, estimated that on average one million concentration camp prisoners might have been killed there. For Allied leaders and journalists, then, the horror of what they'd found in the liberated camps proved the righteousness of the war. Dachau gives the answer to why we fought, as one US Army news sheet put it in May 1945. In addition, the Allies also used the liberated camps to confront the German population with their complicity, beginning a re-education campaign that continued over the coming months. It started with some locals having to exhume mass graves inside camps or on the trail of death marches. More widely, Many Germans were hit by graphic images in the media at the time. According to one observer, the whole country was, quote, deluged with photographs of corpses. This campaign climaxed in 1946, when well over one million Germans saw the harrowing US documentary Death Mills, which also placed blame on the shoulders of the wider German population of an image here, which isn't a very good one. Uh, it wouldn't even be good, I can't, can't blame this one on the projector, um, of the showing of death mills, Todesmühlen in Munich in early 1946. So one million, over one million Germans see this film, 20 odd minute film in 1946. What about their reactions? How did ordinary Germans react to these scenes? It varied, just as reactions to what was known about the crimes in the camps had varied throughout the Third Reich. Some Germans continued to look away as they had done before, but looking away in 1945 and 46 was very difficult. So some Germans were horrified, expressed shame and outrage, and demanded the harsh punishment of the perpetrators. At the very other end of the scale stood those who dismissed everything they saw and heard as allied propaganda and defended the camps as well-run institutions for the detention and the reformation of outsiders and dangerous outcasts, giving, in that sense, new lease or continuing 
the Nazi propaganda image of the camps that had been spread since 1933. Most Germans, though, probably found themselves somewhere in between. They acknowledged that terrible things had happened, but they also denied any personal responsibility. First, they claimed that the crimes had been carried out behind their backs by Nazi fanatics, thus expunging all memories of the pervasive, albeit partial, popular knowledge about the camps which had spread through Germany from 1933. Second, many Germans relativized the camps by equating the suffering and the fate of prisoners inside with their own fate during the war and after. These myths became increasingly entrenched, it seems, in the later 1940s, aided by the Allies' abandonment of denazification, and these myths would form a major part of early post-war German narratives about the Third Reich, and I'll briefly come back to that later. Before I do so, I want to turn to one more important aspect, it seems to me, which also shaped how the camps were perceived, understood, represented in the early months and years after the war, and that is justice. During their imprisonment, it's striking if you read through survivor memoirs, if you read through documents written at the time, diaries of which there are more than one might think, it is certainly striking that revenge fantasies come up again and again at the time, even at the face of, in the face of death. After liberation, however, revenge killings remained, generally speaking, I would contend, relatively rare. There were hardly any excesses, Edgar Kupfer notes in his diary on the day of liberation of Dachau. Equally important was the relative restraint which was exercised by the Allied forces. Again, there are exceptions. But by and large, the Allies guard the majority of captured perpetrators and put a stop to sporadic outbreaks of survivor violence. In the end, the accused would be judged not by the victims, but by courts. The punishment of Nazi criminals had been a major war aim for the Allies. And investigators arrive in all of these different, not all of these different camps, but in the major camps at least, within days of liberation. The most prominent military court that is then established is set up in a place which many OSS staff know only too well, namely Dachau. And one of the documents the Dachau prosecutors, the American prosecutors in Dachau use, are extracts from those pages of Edgar Kupfer's works and writings which have been found so soon after liberation. I have an image here of the first Dachau trial in December 1945. Essentially what happens uh, in front of this Dachau tribunal, for those of you who, who, who don't know, is that the tribunal mainly focuses on crimes committed in large concentration camps liberated by the Americans. There are also sub subsidiary trials of satellite camps or individual uh, staff which had served there. Um, but these camp trials uh, last from 1945, late 45, 
through 1947. The first Dachau trial is actually of Dachau personnel. Later trials are then of Buchenwald personnel and others. The Americans are not alone in setting up tribunals and courts. The British, French, Soviet, and Polish authorities also conduct early trials of perpetrators. But it is that US court we see here through squinted eyes in Dachau, which is the most prolific, prosecuting around 1,000 defendants for crimes in concentration camps. And these defendants were prosecuted and convicted for participating in a common design to commit war crimes. And that was a legal construct which made defendants liable even if there was no evidence for their personal involvement in individual killings. How then should we judge these early trials? Given the immense difficulties facing the Allies, the chaos in occupied Germany, the absence of legal precedents, the shortages of time, shortages of staff, of resources, and so on, it's easy to see why many commentators have reached a positive verdict. After all, many of the leading Camp SS men were punished, and that includes most of the surviving wartime commandants. These sentences against some of the major perpetrators can't obscure serious shortcomings of the Allied trials. The hasty preparation caused wrongful prosecutions and wrongful convictions, while numerous confessions were extracted through what many of us would consider to be improper means. Few defendants could mount a meaningful defense either, with some trials lasting just a day. Then there was the haphazard selection of defendants. Some waited for months and years for trials which never came. Most were never caught. Some were immediately put on trial. There were also huge inequities in sentencing, with several senior SS and industry managers, which had been involved in serious crimes in the camps, receiving far milder sentences than ordinary guards, some of whom had been drafted into the camps in 44 and 45. The timing of the trials was crucial here. Initially, Allied judges aimed at hard retribution, reflecting the clamor back home for strict punishment. But by 1947, when most of these senior managers come to trial, this early outrage has dissipated. As the Cold War turned the divided Germany into a strategic ally of both West and East, sentencing for Nazi crimes became more lenient and the beneficiaries were these managers. But the most troubling aspect, perhaps, or maybe to me the most troubling aspect of these Allied trials is their failure to distinguish between SS officers and officials and prisoner functionaries, these so-called carpos who had been handed temporary powers over fellow inmates by the SS. From the beginning, these two groups, SS and Karpos, are often tried together. Unfamiliar with the basic structures of the camps or unwilling to grasp many of the gray zones inside, 
allied jurists saw Carpos as part of this wider common criminal conspiracy and occasionally even thought that Carpos had been SS members. This resulted in some extraordinary scenes. In the first Belson trial, which actually predates the Dachau trial we see here, a Jewish survivor of Belson who had acted for two days as a lowly block elder in the camp was forced to sit in the dock with career SS men like Commandant Josef Kramer, veteran of Dachau, of Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen. The numbers of Karpos on trial were high. In the US proceedings at Dachau, we see here, almost 10% of defendants were former inmates. And the sentences were severe. In fact, the sentences were often more severe than of SS staff because the Karpos had stuck most more vividly in the minds of prisoners than some of the more anonymous SS men and women. Given that most Karpos had a mixed reputation amongst fellow prisoners, lauded by one group, despised by another, any notion of perfect justice was illusory. But even in the case of universally reviled Karpos, one has to ask whether their punishment fitted their crimes. Take Christoph Knoll. Knoll was by all accounts a vicious Dachau Karpo. But when he was put on trial in Dachau, the Dachau trial in late 1945, he exclaimed, a Karpo is a prisoner and he enumerated all of the SS threats, abuses, beatings he had suffered himself over 12 years, almost 12 years in Dachau. The judges were not interested and sentenced him to death. After his death sentence, he received unexpected support by the Dachau International Prisoner Committee, one of these committees I mentioned earlier, run by political prisoners. Whatever the crimes of a man like Knoll they argued, he was primarily a victim of the camp, and it was wrong to punish him as severely as an SS volunteer. But the US authorities were unmoved and hanged Knoll in May 1946 in Landsberg, together with 26 SS men. Even if one comes to a more positive conclusion about the Allied trials, though, there is the sobering fact that most perpetrators went unpunished. In all, perhaps 60,000 men and women had served in the concentration camps at one time or another throughout the Third Reich. Only a fraction of them had been tried by the time the Allied trials end in, early 19, in the early 1950s. Their punishment now depended above all on German courts in the new Federal Republic and the GDR. But while these courts had started relatively early, to hear cases and had passed a rather large number of sentences in the early years after the war, by the late 1950s and early 50s, these trials seemed to be coming to an end. And this was linked to wider changes, in part at least, of the memory of the camps, to which I now briefly turn. So I'm looking at the 1950s and beyond. Because the GDR proclaimed itself as the successor to the resistance against Nazism, 
the camps, the concentration camps, gained an important place in the national narrative from early on. Still, in the GDR, these trials of perpetrators peter out in the 1950s. Also, the official story at that time is highly selective and distorted, based above all on the self-glorifying accounts of communist survivors, um, epitomized by what we see here, if you can see it, um, namely the mythical self-liberation by communist prisoners in Buchenwald, which forms a cornerstone of GDR narratives about the camps in the 1950s and after. There was, in that sense, no self-liberation because it overlooks the fact that the Americans arrived first and then prisoners kind of take up arms and um, play a, a greater role. Looking over the border into the early Federal Republic here, the story is quite different, but also quite similar. It's similar in the sense that these trials also peter out. It's different in that the memory of the camp is marginalized. And this reflects a wider social and political consensus to leave the Nazi past behind. This amnesia in the early 50s benefits more than anyone else the remaining perpetrators. And under pressure from the West German government, the US releases most of the remaining SS prisoners. The last defendant from those Dachau trials we saw earlier is let go in 1958. Elsewhere, too, popular interest in the camps in this period was waning. In part, this was a case of saturation, as David Cesarani has shown, following the wave of early testimonies, which I've briefly touched on before. More generally, though, public memory of the camps on both sides of the Atlantic is also marginalized by post-war reconstruction and diplomacy. With the front line of the Cold War now cutting through Germany, talk of Nazi crimes seemed impolitic. And within 10 years of liberation, the camps had been largely sidelined. But they don't disappear. The memory of the camps in the 50s fades, but it does not disappear. In West Germany, the few trials which take place actually receive surprisingly a surprisingly large amount of media coverage. There's also the contentious issue of reparations in the 1950s and beyond. At the same time, survivors themselves help to keep the memory of the camps alive. And one of these survivors is Edgar Kupfer, who finally saw the publication of his Dachau book in 1956, albeit in greatly abridged version. This is a cover of the book from 1957, so a, a year after. Um, die Mächtigen und die, die Hilflosen als Häftling in Dachau, the, the, the strong and the, the uh, weak, the, the, the helpless uh, as a prisoner in Dachau. Despite some good reviews of this book in Germany, though, it left little impression and sinks almost without trace and no foreign publisher picks it up either, afraid that the public would not buy it, as Kupfer concludes at the time. Like so many survivors, Kupfer had struggled in the early years after liberation. A bombing raid on Dachau in 1944 had left him with a badly damaged foot, and he also suffered from a depression that pushed him at times to the edge of suicide. 
He felt like a stranger in his native Germany. And in 1953, he gained entry to the United States, like many other survivors of the camps. But he never settled here either. Following a breakdown in 1960, the destitute 56-year-old wrote to an acquaintance, and I quote from the letter, my life here in America has not been blessed by fortune. Bellboy in a hotel, security guard in a warehouse, dishwasher, professional Santa Claus, and finally here in Hollywood, doorman in a large cinema. Popular interest in the camps grew again from the 1960s, both in Germany and elsewhere. This was due in part to major trials of SS perpetrators, the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem, the first Auschwitz trial in Frankfurt in the mid-60s, and also to a new wave of survivor testimonies which begin to appear or are rediscovered, like Primo Levi's, uh, if this is a man. By the 1980s, the picture of the camps in popular memory had changed significantly. Above all, the camps were increasingly identified now with Auschwitz, with the Holocaust, and with its Jewish victims. Meanwhile, the wider academic community finally discovered the camps too. There are some landmark works which appear in the 60s and 70s, but it's really from the late 80s and the 90s that a wave of scholarship uh, uh, swells up which shows no sign of abating. The end of the Cold War and German unification had major impacts on memory culture as well, especially in Germany, but also beyond. All of these changes, though, could not transform the lives of the survivors who bore physical and mental scars that never healed, as we can see by returning at the end one more time to Edgar Kupfer. Kupfer came back to Europe in the 1960s and then spent more than two decades in Italy, increasingly withdrawn and isolated. Bitter about the lack of interest in his chronicle in Dachau, the chronicle which he had put together under daily threat to his life. He lived on an Italian island in abject poverty, literally going hungry. He received some reparation payments in the 1950s after a drawn-out struggle in the courts and also a paltry pension, which was small because the German assessors had minimized the mental anguish he had suffered. Maybe that's something we can talk about later. The, the process by which these assessors go through applications is quite extraordinary. And the kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure others here will know more about this than me, but that seems to me an interesting topic for further research. The indignities Kupfer suffered were compounded by the German authorities' failure to ensure timely payments of the paltry sums which were his due. After yet another late transfer, the normally extremely reserved and proper Kupfer finally lost his composure. All these years after liberation, and he still had to beg for every scrap. Trust me, this life makes me sick. He wrote it to the Stuttgart Office of Reparations in November 1979, which was responsible for handling his case adding, quote, it would probably be best if I took my life, then you would have one troublemaker less, and the German state would only have to pay for my funeral. 
Kupfer eventually returned from Italy to Germany and died in a nursing home in 1991 in complete obscurity. He did not live to see the publication of his complete Dachau diaries, which appeared six years later, and which has since become an invaluable source for scholars of the camps. All survivors have their own stories, some of them happier, some of them even more miserable than that of Edgar Kupfer. Whatever happened to them, they'd often faced similar hardships, lasting pain from injury and illness, the desperate search for a new home and a new job, the indifference of wider society, the undignified struggle for compensation. And they were also left with all of the agonizing memories. The memory of the offense stayed with survivors and denied peace to the tormented, as Primo Levi wrote shortly before his own apparent suicide in 1987. In this way, the memories of the camps proved far more torturous for survivors than for perpetrators, who had often settled into quiet lives and stayed under the radar. Survivors like Edgar Kupfer could not hope for such oblivion. Thank you very much.